right, so a quick recap of last week, both for the sake of people who missed it, missed it and for your sake to remember. Uh, Genesis, first book of what? Lots of things, but first book of what? The Bible. What, okay, we're starting big, now let's narrow down, yeah? The Pentateuch, yeah, the first book of the Old Testament, and then certainly the first book of the Pentateuch. Uh, but, like we said last week, uh, this really wasn't supposed to be thought of as one separate book. It's supposed to be read together, uh, Moses writing the Pentateuch all together. So this is like scroll one of uh, the Pentateuch. So, who wrote it? Moses. To whom is he writing it? The people of Israel. When is he writing it to the people of Israel? This is important, right? When they're in the wilderness and about to do what? What? Enter the land, right? They've been wandering, and now they are about to enter the land, so he writes them uh, the entire Pentateuch, right? Uh, Including Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, Why is he writing this, though? He said this last week, right? Is he, is he trying to give them a science lesson on how and when God created the earth? Or why is he writing this now? And why does he include Genesis 1 and 2 in this whole story? Anybody have any thoughts? Or what I said last week? Sure. To help them, what do you mean? Sure, okay, to show them that they are, okay, I, I think what Andrew's saying is right, that to remind Israel that they are a people of God's choosing, to remind them that they have a theological history, right? To remind them where they come from, to prepare them for about, for, to where they're about to go, right? So in Genesis 1 and 2, we find Adam, a priest, working and keeping the temple, the first temple, the tabernacle, the place of God's presence. I hope you guys were uh, in the first service this morning. Trent just did a knock-up job of Ezekiel. That means good. Uh, just great. Ezekiel is such a weird, strange book. And he, I have a much better understanding of the book. But it is awesome about what he preached this morning. just goes right and just hand in hand with what we talked about last week, that the garden was a shadow of the coming tabernacle of God's dwelling with his people, and then certainly uh, in the new covenant temple of God dwelling with his people through the person of Jesus and in his people through his Holy Spirit. So we saw Adam with perfect worship of God, perfect contentment with what he had been given, perfect relationships with each other, right? Uh, But... We know how this story ends, right? We know where it's going. Pretend you are Israel, uh, wandering around in the wilderness, and you hear this story for the first time. Uh, If you just heard Genesis 1 and 2, what might your question be? That sounds pretty awesome, right? Genesis 1 and 2, perfect contentment, perfect worship, perfect relationships, perfect everything. Uh, So what might your immediate question be as you're hearing Genesis 1 and 2? Yeah? Okay, is that true? Sure. Uh, what do you mean? Why are we living this way, right? Why are we thirsty and hungry 
Why are we wandering around in the desert? Why did our fathers and grandfathers spend over 400 years in slavery in Egypt? What went wrong? Why is there death? Why is there sickness? Why are we sinning? These are good questions. Uh, Well, Genesis 3 gives us our explanation for the world. We see, we talk about worldview sometimes. Here's, this is Genesis 3, these glasses. And we must look at this world through a Genesis 3 worldview, a Genesis 3 uh, lens, right? Uh, If we remove Genesis 3, then we might blame God for being kind of like uh, Christoph kind of like the tyrant God that we saw last night in the Truman Show. Uh, but we realize with Genesis 3 that this world that we're living in now with sin, pain, death, uh, sickness, is not the world that God created. He created a Genesis 1 and 2 world. So today, in looking through Genesis 3, we're going to look at three things, uh, three levels or kind of perspectives of sin. The, the lure of sin the effects of sin, and then the ultimate remedy of sin. So, let's get into it. Verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read this, but kind of go, go through a little bit more slowly. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So, Moses doesn't give us any context here. He doesn't give us any background on who this snake is. We've got, he, we just have some snake cruising up to Eve, uh, and if we're reading this for the first time, if we're hearing it in the wilderness for the very first time, we're like, okay, a crafty snake shows up, but then, whoa, we can talk, right? We've got a talking snake here, kind of weird, uh, and, and not only can it talk, but it starts like acting as kind of like a teacher or a counselor, kind of like maybe your parent should be, uh, and what's weird about this is that what did God give Adam and Eve dominion over in Genesis 1 and 2? What? Yeah, everything, including the beasts of the field, right? This is a a creature that Eve has dominion over, uh, and yet here comes the serpent, like, speaking to her, like, teaching her. So we should immediately say, wait, first of all, a talking snake. Pretty weird. But second of all, why does this animal think that he can just give advice to the one that is created in God's image? God's uh, representative ruler over the world. Something isn't right in the immortal words of Bill and Ted. Strange things are afoot at the Circle K here. Uh, So uh, the serpent comes to Eve with two strategies here. He wants to question the trustworthiness of God's word and then trust, or then question the goodness of God's word. So we'll look at those two real quick. First of all, the serpent comes to Eve questioning the trustworthiness of God's word. Uh, so maybe if we, did, if we knew the conclusion of the story, gonna, Eve is going to eat the fruit, uh, but we don't know uh, the serpent's like, strategy behind it. We might think he might like come up, like slither up with this delicious fruit, like coming out already in his mouth. He's like, mm, it's so delicious, Eve. You should really try this. Uh, and maybe then she eats it because she sees how good it is. But this is the one he does, right? 
he, he comes much more subtly, and he comes giving her an opportunity to actually do what's right, to actually obey. He says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the, any tree in the garden? And we might, uh, we might expect Eve, having just read Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we might expect Eve to say something like, yep, he, he said it. He, he said that we, we could freely and abundantly eat of anything else in the garden. He's given us all of these things to eat and enjoy, but he's given us just this one prohibition, this one thing that we are prohibited or to, to do. And he's given us this one thing that we're prohibited to do so that we might trust in him. Uh, we are to be content in what he has given us. And guess what, serpent? We are. We are perfectly content. This is amazing. A paradise life in God's presence. Well, see you later. Now that I've answered your question, serpent, like, got anything else? Right? But this isn't quite what she says. She says, in verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Uh, And this looks like a pretty decent answer, right? I mean, but let's look at exactly the commandment that God gave Adam. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17. We got that? Keep on going, Druby. Yeah. Yeah. And the Lord God says to Adam, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Eve is close. Eve tells the serpent, pretty closely to what God tells Adam, but she's not quite right. Uh, She's not quite right for probably three reasons here. One, this may seem like a pretty simple omission, a simple word that she leaves out, but God says you may surely or freely, like abundantly eat of everything in the garden. But Eve tells the serpent, yeah, we can eat of the fruit of the trees. She's seemingly like selling God short of his goodness to them. And then she even adds to the command. Did God tell Adam that they can't touch the, the tree? No, just not, to not eat of it. So that she's like making up rules. Like uh, we got to stay super, like as far away as this is possible. We, we got to make sure that we don't do this, 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 and this, and this to keep God's favor. Uh, and then maybe then even she even lightens the punishment of God's uh, judgment against them. She says, God says to Adam, you shall surely die. Like on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Eve says, uh, lest you die. And it seems minor, right? But I think she might be saying, I'm pretty sure we'll die if we eat this fruit. And so that's probably why we're not going to eat it. But I'm not sure. No, you will surely die, God tells Adam. And I think Moses is pretty clearly saying that one of the reasons for Eve's coming sin was her, maybe her unfamiliarity and her knowledge of God's word. This is written to a people uh, that had just finally received God's written word, right? The law in the wilderness. And Moses, I think, might be saying here, know it, love it, memorize it, swim in it, know it the ins and outs of it because it is so wonderful and don't just know it just so you can avoid bad stuff like lest you die right 
Uh, it seems like Eve, maybe her reason for obedience here was just so that she wouldn't die. Uh, but Moses might be saying here to, for, for us to love God's word just because it's God's word. Just because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. So, then the serpent makes a move from questioning whether God's word is right to a much bolder and a much more dangerous question of questioning the goodness of God's word. In verses 4 and 5, the serpent says to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So again, after a first-time reading, we're hearing this for the first time, uh, we might think, uh, okay, she kind of got the first answer a little bit off, but whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on here, serpent. We might think Eve would say. It was one thing for you to question what God said, but it's quite another thing to suggest that what he said is altogether wrong, and that God is wrong, and that he's like not good, that he's like withholding some good from us. We might expect her to say something like that, but she doesn't. And this is exactly what the serpent is suggesting, that God is withholding good from them. The temptation of Satan here is to say that God's word isn't here to bring us joy, but it's rather here not to bring us joy, but to keep us from joy. The temptation of the serpent here is to say that God is withholding goodness from you. That he's just up there to like, anytime you have a, want to have a good time, he's there to like smack something out of your hand, right? That he really is the tyrant God that we saw in the Truman Show last night. He's just messing with us, just withholding goodness from us. And Satan is certainly good at what he does. He was good with Eve, and he's equally effective with us. There's an old Scottish pastor named J.C. Ryle, uh, and he says this about the serpent. He says, what, did, what would you expect Sin will not come to you saying, like with a big flashing red sign, I am sin. No, it would do little harm if it did. Sin always seems good and pleasant and desirable at the time. Uh, Maybe Eve likely would not have eaten the fruit if the serpent came to her and said, Hey lady, I'm here to ruin your life. I'm here to ruin your children's lives. I'm here to ruin the universe. You want to disobey God and eat that fruit? Maybe she would have, but very likely she would not have eaten the fruit. Uh, No, he's convinced her that eating the fruit is actually better for her. It's a better decision to eat the fruit than not eat the fruit. It's a better decision to disobey God than to obey him. So we did the same thing. Sin comes to us just as convincingly, just as sneakily. Uh, Why shouldn't I cheat on this test? I studied hard, man, and I still don't know the answer. And besides, my parents will think more highly of me uh, if if I do. Why why should I have to obey my parents? They just, they just, they know that they don't, they, they don't want me to be cool and they don't want me to fit in, so I'm just not going to obey them. I'll get more approval from my friends if I don't have to honor my parents. Why shouldn't I think lustfully about that guy or about that girl, right? who's it hurting? Besides, it gives me great joy to think about them that way, right? Why shouldn't I eat that fruit? Moses says to Eve, about Eve, it looked good for food. He says it's going to satisfy my hunger. 
It's desirable. It looks delicious. And it will make me wise like God. Eve seems to be saying, of course God would want me to eat this. Because why wouldn't God want me to be happy? Indeed, her conclusion seems to be, if I follow God's commands, if I obey God, my life will be ruined. So, incidentally, the way that Moses describes Eve uh, in, in that, um, sorry, verse 6, that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, I think this corresponds directly to what we saw in 1 John chapter 2, last February or March, uh, when the way John describes worldliness. Remember when we talked about worldliness? John, John describes worldliness as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions. And I think those correlate directly to these. The desires of the flesh, that it was good for food. The desires of the eyes, that it was a delight to the eyes. And that pride and possessions, that she wanted to be wise like God. She was proud of the things that she had and proud of herself. And I think that John, First John is saying that we, just like Adam and Eve, are tempted toward worldliness, or to define the way we defined it uh, six months ago. We have this here. Uh, worldliness, yeah. C.J. Mahaney says, to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. And this, isn't this what Adam and Eve are doing? Exalting and gratifying themselves to the exclusion of God and what he has said. Gratifying their immediate desires and exalting herself as judge to determine what, if God's word is actually good, if God is actually good. And you see what Eve decides? You see that it is Eve who decides that it is good in verse 3, 6? Uh, up until this point, chapters 1 and 2, when have we seen this word good in chapters 1 and 2? We've seen it a lot. Anybody? And God saw that it was good. Each day that he's created, he is just declaring things to be good, good, good. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Actually, it was not good that Adam was alone, so I'm going to create Eve for him. And now it is good, right? But now it is Eve who determines that the tree was good for food, completely independent of what God has said of goodness. Or another definition of worldliness that I saw this week uh, worldliness is what me- whatever makes sin look normal and what makes righteousness look strange. This is worldliness, right? What Sin looked normal to Eve, right? Yeah, this is good. I'm going to do it. And righteousness, obedience to God, it, w- it would be strange for me not to eat that fruit, right? But don't we do the same thing and don't we react the same way? So, the setup of this has been building for a while. Moses takes six verses or so to build a dialogue here, but the actual act is quite quick. Once Eve has decided that eating the fruit would be good for her, uh, she took the fruit and ate. And then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and ate. And we don't have time to get into like the shocking revelation. Right? Most of the pictures and felt boards that we saw as kids was Eve with the serpent, right? Adam's nowhere in the picture. But Moses says Adam is right there with her. Maybe standing there watching. Maybe like sitting over here against this tree, sitting in the shade, like playing with grass as his wife is like getting devoured by God's greatest enemy, just indifferent to what's happening. Uh, This is amazing. Uh, 
And we don't have time to get into the implications for you young men as you prepare for marriage many years from now. Some of you sooner than later. Uh, but we'll see in, the moment, in a moment that the Lord God, who does the Lord God call on when he comes? Who does he hold accountable for this sin? Adam. He comes to the man and says, where are you, Adam? And then in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it's through the sin of one man, Adam. It's through this sin of like passivity and through this sin of conscience disobedience to God that sin enters the world. Anyway, when this happens, though, their eyes are opened. And this is exactly what Satan promised them. He said, your eyes will be opened, he said to Eve. And then Moses says, their eyes were opened. What they were looking forward to, their eyes being opened, actually destroyed their lives and everything around them. Adam did become like God in one sense, that he could make like autonomous or like individual decisions apart from God. He could see and decide, but his eyes weren't opened so much that he could see in the future to the disastrous effects of his sin. He couldn't Unlike God, he couldn't see the consequences of his sin both one minute later and generations future. And so we do see immediately the effects of their sin. Uh, you guys seen the old cartoon, The Lamb Before Time? Right? Little foot, sharp tooth, right? Uh, this came out when I was a little kid. Uh, but you know the scene in the beginning, right, where there's the huge earthquake and Little Foot is like separated from his family? His family, right? Yeah, his family. Uh, like massive shifts in the land and complete separation. This is, this is, I think, kind of the picture that's painted here. As soon as we see this fruit eaten. You guys been at the store when you were a little kid or at an amusement park holding your mom's hand, your dad's hand, and somehow you get separated in that first moment, panic, because you're separated uh, from your parent this is immediately what happens this is a land before time shift of separation immediately in the universe and in their relationships so the effects of sin we see some indirect effects and then later we're going to look at some direct effects or direct curses from god so first indirectly immediately they know they're naked Prior to this, Adam and Eve found every single bit of their confidence, of their security, of their contentment in a good and generous father, Uh, right? When you're holding your hand, your mom's hand at the amusement park or at a baseball game, even though there's thousands of people around and you're only four and you're tiny, you're not worried because you got you got dad's hand, right? Uh, but what happens the moment that you look around and he's not there? Uh, panic. Uh, and I think this is kind of what's happening when they realize their nakedness. Uh, before, there was no need to hide anything. There was nothing to be insecure about, nothing to be ashamed about, perfect confidence and security with their Heavenly Father. But now this relationship is severed, like Littlefoot, Adam and Eve, are canyons and miles apart from their dad, from their father. Uh, 
And so they try their hardest to cover themselves because now they're acutely aware of their lack of confidence, of their lack of security, of their fear. Um, And so we then see a hiding of sin. Verse 10. Once God comes and asks where they are, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So he's afraid and so he's trying to cover his sin both by uh, fig leaves and by bushes, right? He is afraid of his nakedness, afraid of uh, the effects of his sin. And then we see some blame shifting go on, right, in their relationships. God says in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you, not eaten, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave me, she made me do it. Right? And then God says to the woman, All right, what happened? And the woman says, The serpent made me do it. Right? Blaming everyone. Sin isn't my fault. It was your fault. It was my dad's fault. It was my sister's fault. It was my teacher's fault. It's certainly not my fault. Right? But... Did you notice who, who else Adam blames? He doesn't blame just Eve. Who else does he blame? God himself. Why, is, why does Adam say it's God's fault? Zeliana? You gave me. If you had never given me this woman, then I would have never sinned, right? I can just imagine God being like, the woman that I gave you, you mean... Before I created her, you only had the squirrels to talk to. You, had, you were completely lonely before I created her. The woman whom when you first saw her, you erupted into poetic song. Are you talking about my greatest gift to you? That one, which brings us to our last indirect effect of sin, is just ingratitude. And our sin, we, God has given us a abundantly. I mean, just think about the luxuries that we enjoy as Americans in 2013. And we are just ungrateful for the things that God has given us. So immediately, we see disruption amongst horizontal relationships between Adam and Eve. We see disruption in vertical relationships, Adam and Eve and God. And all these are immediately felt. But then also... God directs, or God curses directly. There are some direct effects of their sin. And before we think, whoa, really? Curses? Really? I mean, it seems a bit extreme. She made a mistake, right? She got tricked. We really need some curses here? Is a land before time earthquake? And curses from God really necessary? Seriously? Well, I hope you guys have, over the last few months, a year, you have a greater and fuller view of what your sin is. It's more than just an occasional mistake or slip up. I heard uh, Trent this week give this definition of sin from John Piper, and I'm going to read this, but soak in this. This is what what Eve did when she ate the fruit. Uh, This is not a mistake. Listen to this. What is sin? We have it. It is the glory of of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought. 
the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. This is Adam and Eve here in Genesis 3. This is us. This is not just a mistake that we get tricked into. This is, this is treason against a good king. A righteous and holy God cannot tolerate such treason. Satan tried to convince Eve that God's judgment was not real, right? This is his first move, the first doctrine of God that he questions. You will not surely die. Then there's no judgment and justice for your sin. But God's judgment of sin is quite real, and he makes that clear immediately. Uh, but quick, though, before we get into God's judgment and cursing of sin, we already see, we already see his grace and his mercy. How is this? We've talked about this before in here from this text. Where have we already seen God's grace and mercy in Genesis 3? It's there. Pretty clearly, uh, what did God tell Adam would happen when he ate of the tree? Or ate of the fruit? Surely die. Like, we, remember, remember this? I don't remember. We were talking about this in the, when we were going through some of the parables. We might expect, because of our knowledge of Genesis 1 and 2, when Eve takes the fruit of the tree, what might we expect? Bam! Dead! Lightning bolt! Gone! obliterated. Is this what happens? God is perfectly just, perfectly just and right to do what he's promised, uh, to, to judge sin. But this isn't what happens, right? God comes to them. Where are you? Drawing them back out into the light. Drawing them back into relationship with them, uh, even though of their great, great sin. Uh, yeah, so, his coming grace and mercy, which we're going to see in just a minute, is even more highlighted by the fact that he shows none to the serpent. So this is where we get our first curse, verses 14 and 15. Enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and you shall bruise, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. For the rest of the serpent's days, God is saying, you will be at war with the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman will be at war with you. This word seed or offspring uh, is a pretty interesting word that can be used either plurally, uh, lots of seed, or singularly, the singular seed of you, the woman. Uh, and it appears here that God means both. Uh, we're going to look in, in a minute at the singular seed, but first the collective seed, the plural seed of the woman. In the rest of Genesis, we'll see the seed of the serpent 
continually trying to destroy the seed of the woman, the collective seed of the serpent destroying the collective seed of the woman. In fact, next week we're going to see that Cain is going to show himself to be the seed of the serpent uh, when he is trying to, when he kills his brother, the seed of the woman, Abel. This is what, uh, remember if you guys remember when Pastor Tim taught through 1 John 3, John says that John or that Cain was of the evil one. He was of the seed of the evil one, the seed of the serpent. Jesus in John 8.44 says, he says, you are of your father, the devil. You, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. You are the seed of the serpent. He is denouncing these to be. You are of his seed. And this collective seed of the serpent is going to try to do continual harm to the collective seed of of the woman through whom God will bless the world. So we'll get back to the singular seed of the woman in a moment. But then God moves to his second curse, this time toward uh, the woman. We might sum this curse up uh, in just difficulty in childbearing and difficulty in male-female relationships. Uh, Verse 16, he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And we will certainly see this curse played out over the next 14 weeks in Genesis. We're going to continually have women who are barren. We're having difficulty in bearing children. And there is no shortage of examples of crazy male-female relationship stuff here. This is where our R-rated stories in Genesis come from. A direct effect of this curse. Uh, And then lastly, God curses uh, to Adam with problems with the land. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The rest of Genesis, we see hard work. We see drought. We see hunger. We see death because of lack of food, because there is problems with the land. And it, these three curses, by the way, don't just end at the book of Genesis. We see them played out through the rest of the Bible, and then we certainly see these three curses played out in our own lives today. So, after these direct three curses, the Lord God sends them out of the land, out of the garden, and into exile toward the east, where the land now is guarded by an angel. This is where we get to our remedy of sin. Here's where... Jesus or the Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament really just takes off and becomes alive and becomes amazing. Uh, we said last week, I, I want to emphasize that there is a human author here. Moses is writing uh, to specific people and he's writing in a specific genre of narrative, of story. But we might also say that God is authoring this book as well. God is speaking through the pen of Moses. And what I'm about to show you, when I first heard this taught, uh, like, open my eyes to the bigness of the Bible. And certainly I hope what Trent taught in the first service of Genesis to Ezekiel to Revelation uh, makes the great story of the Bible really 
come alive. So, here's where we go. In a month or so, we get to this guy named Abram. Where, where did, which direction did God send Adam and Eve out of the land? Or out of the garden? To the east? God is going to bring a man back from the east and into the land. Where he begins to, what's gonna, what I'm going to show you in four or five weeks is pretty awesome. He's going to make some promises to Abraham that are going to undo these covenant curses, or to begin to undo these covenant curses that God gave in the garden. Uh, Stay tuned for that. It's good. Uh, But because of the danger in the land and God's guiding hand, the covenant seed of the woman will end up in Egypt, right? In in slavery. I'm going to try to do this backwards for you guys, right? Yeah, they're going to end up out of the land and into Egypt. And then they're brought up out of Egypt where they're taken through the waters of the Red Sea, where they wander for 40 years. And then, after 40 years, they come back from the east, across the Jordan River, to begin their ministry of blessing to the world. And by the way, who, who is there guarding the land uh, that allows them to come back in? That's an angel, the commander of the army of the Lord in Joshua 1. It's an angel who is guarding the land in Genesis 3, and it's an angel uh, who allows them back in. Uh, But then, like Adam, God's first son, Israel, who God calls his son, uh, maybe now they're going to actually do the work of blessing the entire world that Adam was supposed to do, of being fruitful and multiplying and making God's glory known throughout the earth. Adam failed in this mission, but maybe now Israel will actually do it as a replaying of Adam's history. But like their father Adam, Israel is disobedient again. So God curses them, this time through the prophets, and where does he send them? He exiles them out of the land. In which direction? To the east, to Babylon, to Assyria. And all the while in this story, there is continual enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Until we get to the singular seed of the woman that's described in Genesis 3.15. This time, this son of God uh, will replay Israel's history, but this time in perfect obedience. He'll be birthed in the land, but because of danger and God's guiding hand, the singular seed of the woman is going to end up in Egypt. He's brought up out of Egypt, through the waters of the Jordan River, then where he is tempted in the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And after this temptation, now he is brought from the east across the Jordan River, where he will now begin his ministry of blessing the entire world and the land. Uh, But where Adam and Israel were disobedient in their ministries of blessing the whole world, uh, Jesus, God's own son, is obedient even to the point of death on the cross where he will finally crush the head of that ancient snake, as God promised in Genesis 3.15. And that's why theologians call this, here's a big Greek word for you, theologians will call this verse, Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium. The proto, the first, even, what does that word sound like? Evangelium. Evan, what? Evangelical or evangelism, a good news. The, the first good news, the first gospel. We have God, even in the midst of the first act of treason, the first act of sin, God spelling out his plan of the gospel 
the first gospel right here in Genesis 3. Uh, and this, this is what God uh, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, maybe you guys have read it, it's great. Uh, what the author there describes as God's great rescue plan, right? Described right here in the third chapter of the Bible. Doug Wilson, a pastor in Idaho, says that Adam lost his bride through disobedience at a tree. And the last Adam won his bride through obedience on a tree. Jesus lives the obedient life that we and our father Adam could not and would not live. And then he becomes the curse that is rightfully given towards us by dying the death that we should have died. And then an amazing turn of words here. Uh, in, uh, sorry, in verse 6, Eve took of its fruit and ate. She took and she ate. And what does Jesus tell us to do in the upper room where he is instituting the new covenant of his body and of his blood? He says, take and eat. The very thing that brought us complete disruption with our relationship with God, now taking and eating of Jesus' body and blood, now brings us to restoration with it. Incredible. It's amazing, amazing grace right here in Genesis 3. So, what, is us, what, is this, what do we do with this? Do you see your sin as God sees it? Not as a place of joy, of contentment, of satisfaction, a, a, a better move for you to make than to obey. Or do you see your sin as a place of death, of disruption? To use the C.S. Lewis quote that I've used 500 times in here, human history is the long and terrible story of man what? Anybody remember? Human, human history is the long and terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. This is the story of Eve. This is the story of Adam. This is the story of Israel. And this is our story as well of trying anything, trying to find anything other than God. The only thing that actually can give us happiness, which will make us happy. What a miserable story. So are you trusting in the way that he has provided to restore himself to you, his great rescue plan? At the cross, Jesus is saying to those who left the paradise of God's love, we are all the Truman Burbanks and the Truman Show. Like, saying, I'm out of here, man. I'm out of your authority. It's better for me to leave uh, Sea Haven than to be with you. It's better for me to leave the garden than to be with you. And yet God comes to us, those that are outside of his presence and don't even want to be there in the first place. God says, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Saying, come to the cross, acknowledge your sin to be what it really is, and rest on my work on your behalf, and find life in my presence and life to the full. This is good news, and we see it right here in Genesis 3. Um, all right, we've got plenty of time. So let's break up. Mid-high boys, high school boys, mid-high girls, high